thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, Episode 9.1, Space Medieval Times. Last time we took a long look at the meta surrounding the creation of the new Sith Wars and then ran through the timeline up to 2000 BBY. This time the new Sith Wars begin, we enter the Republic Dark Age, and we tell the, and we tell the story of the last good Jedi of the Old Republic, Kara Holt. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. The New Sith Wars Part 1, Knight Errant, 2000 to 1032 before the Battle of Yavin. When we left off, we got way too deep into the meta. We introduced Series 9 by discussing the creation of the New Sith Wars, why George Lucas changed the continuity, and the chaotic, contradictory production of New Sith Wars content. Then, we rejoined the narrative and covered the timeline from the end of SWOTOR around 3625 to just before the new Sith Wars began in 2000 BBY. You will no doubt recall that there wasn't much to discuss as that 1600-year period is uh, extremely sparse on details. In spite of that, we were able to track some big cracks that had formed in the foundation of the Republic. For years, these issues like rampant corruption, bias toward the core worlds, and economic woes were steadily getting worse, but doing so just under the surface. You could see them if you knew where to look and how to gauge things, but very few people had that kind of access to information. But the system shock that the Republic experiences with the outbreak of the new Sith Wars will lay all these problems bare for all the galaxy to see. Even after... The initial Sith push is defeated in less than a year. The Republic won't be able to reclaim all their old territories or fully root out the Sith. For their part, the Jedi will attempt to shoulder most of this burden, though they have had problems of their own. After all, you can't very well have the new Sith without a Jedi leaving the Order to start them, now can you? We will get to all of that in this episode as we go through the timeline from the start of the new Sith Wars up to the... Night Errant series in 1032 BBY. We will actually cover those 958 years pretty quickly as everything we know from that time comes from reference books, except for one short story, which is just background for some chapter or for some characters from the Clone Wars era. That 958 years will see the Republic begin to fully splinter as it withdraws from wide outlying swaths of territory, consolidating its power in the core worlds, while also leaving trillions of former citizens defenseless. Finally, we will see how the Jedi responded and get one of our best looks at the lives of regular people in the galaxy with the Knight Errant series, which features one of the genuinely great Jedi in the history of the franchise, Kara Holt. Just a warning, this episode will be a bit longer than usual. Yet another Revenge of the Sith. In 2000 BBY, an Umbaran Jedi Master named Phanius left the Order after members expressed concern for his new self-centered takes on the Force. Phanius had grown to believe that his own mind, and thus himself, were the only things to exist, a philosophy we know as solipsism. 
Other Jedi ma masters denounced and objected to Phanius, to Master Phanius' new philosophy, and he left when it became apparent his views were not going to be tolerated. Upon his departure, Phanius began searching for other views on the Force and found an ancient Jedi holocron that held information about their ancient enemies, the Sith. Phanius sought out more knowledge of the supposedly long-extinct group, eventually finding a number of small cults on remote worlds that worship the Sith. Phanius, having fallen fully to the dark side, took up the Darth title in the style of the mainline Sith and became Darth Ruin, the first Dark Lord of the Sith since the death of Darth Treya on Malachor V in 3951. The ones in Sotor don't count since the true Sith used the term differently than the mainline Sith. Even after he proclaimed the new Sith to the galaxy, Ruin's old pals on the Jedi Council never knew that the new Dark Lord was their old friend Phanius. That seems incredibly naive and short-sighted of them, but that's what the reference books tell us. Needing an army, Darth Ruin first united the disparate Sith cults and then seduced 50 Jedi Knights to abandon the Order in what would become known as the Fourth Great Schism. Finally, after forming his new dark side followers into an army, they struck out against the Republican Jedi, starting the new Sith Wars in 2000 BBY. The onset of galaxy-spanning war shook the Republic to its core, and its, and its very public decline began in earnest. The Jedi and Republic military rebounded to defend against new Sith assaults, but Ruin's fall would come from within. Darth Ruin adhered to an individualistic view of the dark side, treating his followers as little more than grunts to be used as cannon fodder as he saw fit. This penchant for throwing away li the lives of his subordinates became evident, and Ruin's assassination happened before the year 2000 even ended. Aftermath. The outbreak of the new Sith Wars delivered a cataclysmic system shock to the Old Republic from which it would never recover. Although its problems had been growing just beneath the surface for centuries, having to fight an actual war brought them bubbling up. Despite the relatively short ride and fall of Darth Ruin, uh, the new Sith wouldn't go away. Ruin's selfish desire to rule had resurrected the Sith Empire of old, whether he intended to do so or not. The Sith took up their old territories in the Outer Rim and then began warring with one another for dominance. Unfortunately, the Republic was unable to address this, and the Jedi were too preoccupied with propping up the Republic that they were also helpless against it. As a result, the Republic lost some territory, and the Sith Menace would continue growing in the shadows. Following the start of war, a small number of Jedi abandoned the Order entirely and went to found their own Force sect on Yenabar, along with their family and friends. However, most of the group was slaughtered by ferocious local wildlife, and the small group was forgotten, eventually forming the Zishinsha Force religion. But the good news was that the new Sith had been put down quickly, so the Republic could maintain the pretense of normalcy. For more than 200 years, we know very little except that the status quo largely held firm, and the Republican Jedi still managed to cause their own problems even when the Sith were not threatening. In 1800 BBY, the Republic, with at least tacit Jedi approval, decided to launch a preemptive strike against the Ubi species after they attempted to conquer nearby systems. During the, fall, the Battle of Uba IV, the Republic's bombardment mistakenly hit a cache of buried superweapons that detonated and released toxic chemicals across the world. 
In the process, millions of Ubes died, and they rightfully claimed that the Republic had committed genocide against their species. The Republican Jedi wouldn't have much time to recover after shooting themselves in the foot. But before we get there, Canon Alert 46. The new Sith Wars have been loosely canonized as the Jedi-Sith War by numerous sources. Technically the, the, technically, the culmination of that war was already canonized by reference in The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, but we digress. In Legends, the final war between the Jedi and Sith lasts for 1,000 years and is actually a series of, of conflicts, the last of which is known as the Light and Darkness War. Currently in canon, all we know is that the final conflict between the Jedi and Sith, all we know of is the final conflict between the Jedi and Sith during the fall of the Old Republic, which may be the last in a series of conflicts that last a thousand years, but we don't know that yet. As we will see with most of the canon alerts for Series 9, things have changed pretty drastically. For example, in canon, Coruscant is captured by the Sith during the Jedi-Sith War and is later retaken by the Jedi when the Sith are ultimately defeated. In Legends, Coruscant is not much of a factor in the new Sith Wars. Another example is the Mandalorians. In canon, they play a part in the Jedi-Sith War as they use the fall of the Old Republic and the Battle of Coruscant as a chance to reclaim the Darksaber, which had been stored at the Jedi High Temple for years. In Legends, the Mandalorians are a non-entity during the New Sith Wars. You can find out more about the canon Mandalorian incursion into Coruscant during the fall of the Old Republic in Episode 4.4. Despite these differences, the Jedi-Sith War ends in the exact same fashion as the New Sith Wars. The Sith are ultimately defeated by the Jedi and seemingly go extinct as a result. A group of Sith known as the Brotherhood of Darkness does battle with a group of Jedi called the Army of Light, and of course, Darth Bane survives the war, takes on a new apprentice, and perpetuates the Sith Order through through the adoption of his Rule of Two. So while the story may change somewhat in the retelling we, we get in the new canon, the broad strokes remain the same. Just to reiterate, the new Sith Wars have been generally canonized as the Jedi-Sith War, the final war between the Jedi and Sith before the reorganization under the Rule of Two, but we don't know how long it lasted in canon or if it's part of a larger series of ongoing conflicts like the new Sith Wars and Legends. In 1750 BBY, the new Sith had once again united around a new leader who took up the title Dark Lord of the Sith, but was simply known as the Dark Underlord. Little is known of this Dark Underlord, except that he united the feuding Sith, formed an army of soldiers known as Black Knights, and they began terrorizing hyperlanes and settlements in the Outer Rim from their base on Malrev IV. The Dark Underlord was rumored to be a Sith side spirit summoned from the realm of chaos, while others claimed he was the reborn spirit of Zendor, a dark Jedi who lived circa 24,500 BBY. Regardless, the Dark Underlord and his Black Knights eventually drew the ire of the Republic and Jedi, especially a Jedi Master named Murtog. Having grown tired of Sith shenanigans, Murtog hired a band of Mandalorian mercenaries, combined them with his Republic and Jedi forces, and launched a diversionary attack on Mara 4. While his forces battled the Dark Knights, 
Murtaugh and others found and dueled the Dark Underlord. In the end, the Dark Underlord was killed, but Murtaugh fell to the dark side in the process. The Jedi Republic won the first Battle of Malrav IV, but paid a very high price for doing so. From there, the timeline goes dark again until 1500 BBY, when the Republic slash Jedi won three major victories against the Sith at King's Gauklek, Corphelion, and Gap 9. In 1500 BBY, we also get our first standalone story of the new Sith Wars era, though it's only a 12-page one-shot comic. Prototypes, written by Robert E. Barnes and published in 2005. Prototypes appeared in the 2005 story collection Visionaries, which is notable for being the first story to portray Darth Maul's survival after the events of The Phantom Menace. That story was considered non-canonical at the time, but the others appear to have been incorporated into the continuity unless they were later contradicted. Prototypes tells the backstory of Dirge, the bounty hunter who appeared prominently in Gindy Tartakovsky's Clone Wars animated series. In Prototypes, we learn that Dirge was actually born circa 2022 BBY and later trained by an ex-Mandalorian named Jang. Dirge's species was long-lived, but this was enhanced by the addition of cybernetic implants. In 1500, a scientist invited Dirge and Jang to have cybernetics installed, including those that would extend their lifespans for many years. However, the scientist encased both in suits of armor that kept them alive indefinitely, though Dirge's physiology kept trying to heal his body over the cybernetics. After the surgery, Dirge and Chang tested their new armor by defending the scientist's facility from an attack by Mandalorians. During the battle, Dirge and Chang were hit by an explosion from a thermal detonator, and Chang was seemingly killed. With his master dead, Dirge attempted to flee the encounter and, and kill the Mandalore in a duel. After that, Dirge fled into hiding to recover and then take up life as the life of bounty hunting which he would continue to do until being killed by Obi-Wan Kenobi during the Clone Wars in the 2003 Clone Wars animated series. Back at the facility, Jang was barely clinging to life when the scientists revealed that all of this had been part of his plan to spark war between the Mandalorians and Sith. After learning the truth, Jang dies and the mad scientist goes back to his scheming. None of this has any effect on the Old Republic narrative, but it did happen, so we wanted to put it in here. The Battle of Mizra, 1466, would mark a turning point in the war and begin the Old Republic's death spiral. Since the beginning of the New Sith Wars 534 years beforehand, the Republic could plausibly claim that they were winning the war. Every Sith threat had been defeated and civilization continued much as it had for the thousands of years within much of the Republic. That all changed with the Battle of Mizra. We know little of the surrounding context, but in 1466 BBY, the Republic and Jedi met the resurgent Sith in the Battle of Mizra. Scores of Sith Lords roamed the battlefields on speeder bikes, slashing down their enemies like a dark side motorcycle gang. Soon enough, Sith victory was assured and the Republic slash Jedi forces attempted to retreat in orderly fashion, but it didn't go as planned. During the retreat, a Jedi Master was using battle meditation to hold the Sith at bay, but a Sith Sniper was able to kill the Jedi Master from long range. 
Without the aid of battle meditation, the retreat turned into a rout and ensured the Battle of Misra would go down as the worst defeat in Republican Jedi history. In the ensuing chaos, some 500,000 Republic and Jedi troops were massacred while hundreds of Jedi defected to the Sith cause after witnessing the carnage. It is not hyperbole to say that the Battle of Misra permanently broke the Republic. In the aftermath, the Old Republic retreated from most of the Outer Rim territories, effectively ceding control of them to the Sith Empire. Losing so many troops escalated an increasing troop shortage, meaning outlying systems were even more vulnerable to attack. This is when Republic civilization begins to rapidly and publicly decay. That poorly maintained infrastructure began to break down on a massive scale, leaving many systems with drastic resource shortages and mass suffering. Seeing this, the Jedi realized that the Senate was too corrupt and ineffective to function, so they formally took on roles as politicians, bureaucrats, and sector leaders. Beginning around 1400 BBY, the last non-Jedi would end their term as Supreme Chancellor. For its final 400 years, the Old Republic was ruled both literally and figuratively by the Jedi. All power had been vested under the Supreme Chancellor and the Galactic Senate, such as it was, became a playground of dilettantes and wealthy scions playing at politics. Sometime after the Battle of Misra, but before 1250 BBY, the Sith were once again reconsolidated under a new leader on a new world. This time they followed Darth Riven from his fortress on Almas. Darth Riven was a powerful Sith Lord who took his name from an ancient manuscript that misspelled Darth Riven's name. And that's not even the goofiest thing about Riven, as we will see. Almas had been an inhospitable planet, but Riven invented a grass that would terraform the world, making it livable. There he built his fortress over a focal point in the dark side, which would be channeled, which could be channeled to fire force lightning at passing starships. Riven also created an army of Sith battle lords, warriors who had powerful force bonds with Riven, and the battle lords in turn had powerful force bonds with their troops so they could be controlled via the force. This eliminated Sith infighting and desertion rates and looked to make the Sith armies unstoppable. At some point during this time, Riven also found time to write his autobiography by hand, something almost unheard of in all of Star Wars. Riven also wielded an ancient artifact known as the Dark Staff, which could drain the force from someone. Finally, the Republican Jedi attacked Riven and his battle lords in the Battle of Almas. During the fighting, Riven was eliminated and his battle lords and their troops fell into disarray. The fleet blasted Riven's fortress from orbit, leveling everything except a single tower. The Jedi assumed that Riven had been betrayed and killed by his apprentice, Darsen, but Riven had actually blinked out of existence entirely. While attempting to use the Dark Staff, Riven opened up a portal in time and space that transported him hundreds of years into the future at the Seventh Battle of Rusan. Drained of his ability to use the Force by the Dark Staff, Riven was easily slain by a random Jedi on the battlefield. Now, everything about Darth Riven comes from a scenario shown in a tabletop RPG source book, so the details get a little wild, but it's there and we thought you should know. His name is also a contradiction since Bane believed he was the la- since Bane believed he was the first Sith Lord to take up the title Darth after Darth Ruin had done so in 2000. But again, it's just goofy stuff 
from an RPG source book, so take it with a grain of salt. The Sictus Wars. By 1250 BBY, a new Sith Lord named Belia Darzu had asserted control over the Sith. Based on an ancient fortress on the long-forgotten Jedi homeworld of Tython, Darzu used Sith alchemy and a force ability known as Mecha Deru to fuse living flesh and metal together to form techno-beasts. From this, Darzu developed a nanogen spore that was capable of transforming living beings into techno-beasts almost instantaneously. This allowed her army of techno-beasts to grow and assimilate new warriors from their foes on the battlefield. For 20 years, the Sictus Wars raged as techno-beasts ravaged worlds and Belia Darzu led from her citadel on Tython. During that time, she had also entered into a fruitful partnership with the Mekarosa Order of Assassins from the Tapani Sector. By 1230, however, that partnership was breaking down and the Mekrosa plotted against Darzu. So it was that in 1230, the Mekrosa Order poisoned Belia Darzu on Tython, and her techno-beasts were soon killed off with no one to give them orders. Darzu's legacy would endure long past her death, and she would become one of the former Sith Lords whom Bane learned from to formulate his Rule of Two and ensure the survival of the Sith. After 1230, we know nothing for 130 years when the Republic Dark Age begins in 1100 BBY. However, before we get into the Republic Dark Age and then the Knight Errant series, let's jump ahead in the timeline briefly to discuss the Mandalorians. In 1058 BBY, a Mandalorian mercenary named Aga Awad would return to Mandalore to find his clan and family dead from an outbreak of the Kandorian Plague. He also found that the Mandalorians were being harassed by raiders and rallied his people to remember their heritage and defend their homeworld. Awad continued to rebuild his people until 1051, when he became their official leader, taking the title Mandalore the Uniter. Under his rule, Mandalore would become a regional industrial powerhouse and a formidable, if small, military. And that's the last we will see of the Mandalorians in the Old Republic timeline. Space Medieval Times In 1100 BBY, the Old Republic was decaying rapidly and entered its final 100 years of existence, a period that would become known as the Republic Dark Age. Large swaths of territory were abandoned as the with uh, Large swaths of territory were abandoned as the Republic withdrew almost exclusively to the deep core, core worlds, and colonies regions to protect itself. As usual, there will be links to maps for all this confusing geography in the show notes. When the outlying regions were abandoned, the Republic maintained Holonet was taken offline in those regions because upkeep outside the Republic was too expensive. This threw the outlying regions of the galaxy into disarray and isolation as they had no means to communicate with one another. To make matters worse, most sectors didn't have reliable hyperspace routes and coordinates on hand, so they didn't know which way to travel in the hyperlanes. Ships could attempt to travel into Republic space, but it was a dangerous proposition. Almost overnight, most of the systems outside the core were isolated with little ability to travel or communicate amongst themselves or the Republic except by courier ships from the Republic. 
To top it off, successive outbreaks of Kandorian plague hit the galaxy over the next 100 years, killing trillions. Even if the Republic wanted to protect the outlying regions, it couldn't do so because its military was decimated after centuries of systemic failures. Following the, catas- the catastrophic losses at the Battle of Mizra in 1466, the Republic military faced constant personnel shortages, a problem that only got much worse after 1100 due to smaller territory from which to draw recruits and the Kandorian Plague. Combined, this left thousands of systems unprotected, a job that fell to the Jedi. However, the Republic wasn't stable enough to support them, and so the Jedi built their own power bases and militias in these sectors. They are given castles and lands and titles, and whether they wanted it or not, these Jedi became feudal lords. Thus, the Jedi baronial sectors were born, and their leaders became Jedi lords. Of course, the Sith moved moved in as well and fought these Jedi lords and one another for territory, With the collapse of much transportation and communication and lacking any centralized rule, the Sith splintered into thousands of feudal sectors, usually ruled by Sith families. The Knight Errant series. Our best look at this feudal system comes from John Jackson Miller's Knight Errant series, which includes, in chronological order, Influx, a short story, Aflame, a six-issue comic arc, the Knight Errant novel, Deluge, a five-issue comic arc, and Escape, another five-issue comics arc. All five of these stories are set in 1032 BBY, and there's also an online supplement to the Essential Atlas that is written as an in-universe guide to the Grumani sector, the location for the entire Knight Errant series. Released between 2010 and 2012, the Knight Errant series covers a year in the life of Karaholt, a newly proclaimed Jedi Knight who defends the people of her home sector from the Sith. Incidentally, the Knight Errant novel represents John Jackson Miller's first professional novel. Karaholt is also the second Jedi Knight named after an apartment building Miller lived in while writing part of the series. The first was Zane Carrick, who was featured as the main protagonist of series four of the KOTOR comics and whose surname was taken from a dorm Miller lived in as a student at the University of Tennessee. In the Knight Errant series, Miller appears to have been modeling the Sith in the Grumani sector on the fall of the Western Roman Empire circa 476 CE. Much like the Romans, the Sith splintered and their territory was divided up by a local warlords fighting over it. As these warlords solidified their rule, they began to pass the territory onto their descendants, creating a feudal system of outlying powerful lords with no real centralized state. Obviously, that's a wild oversimplification of the fall of Rome, and that happened over many hundreds of years in the real world, while it happened in about 40 years in the Star Wars universe. As if to drive this theory home, the matriarch of our feuding Sith family is named Vilia Calamondria, with Vilia being an anagram for Livia, aka the wife of Augustus Caesar and mother of Tiberius, the first two emperors of the Roman Empire. In some tellings of ancient history, Livia is painted as a wicked stepmother who plans assassinations and does whatever may be necessary to protect her interests. It's a fairly problematic reading for obvious reasons, so that will we will let the Roman history experts handle, but suffice to say, in John Jackson Miller's telling, 
Livia absolutely did it. Background. But enough of that meta, let's get back to the narrative. Our background begins before 1066 BBY when the Sith warlord named Vilia Calamandria united the entire Grimani sector under her control through shrewd marriages and a penchant for warfare. The Grimani sector, which serves as the setting for 99% of the Knight Errant series, lies in the southern quadrant of the galaxy in the Outer Rim on the boundary line with the Mid-Rim territories. The Grimani sector also contains a sizable chunk of the Hydean Way super hyper route, meaning it was fairly wealthy. Remember, sectors were larger territories of space made up of many systems and habitable worlds. The Grimani sector was home to many worlds, which we will discuss in greater depth shortly. Also, there are two planets, Apluene and Heptuene, that end in the O-O-I-N-E suffix. You might recall that in episode 5.6, we briefly discussed that a bunch of worlds in the Star Wars universe end in the letters O-O-I-N-E, and we said there were at least 12 or 13 of them. However, we can now say that we were wrong because we didn't include either planet in the Grimani sector at that time. So let us issue an official correction and say that there are at least 14 or 15 worlds that end in the Uin suffix. Tatooine, Dantooine, Cladooine, Handooine, Deltooine, Vactooine, Carduine, Kinuine, Mantooine, Reltooine, Ventooine, Sestooine, Apluine, and Heptooine. There, there's also a world called Gracuine, which is spelled slightly differently, ending in O-U-I-N-E, but sounds the same when pronounced. So as we said, 14 or 15, depending on Gracuine. It just wouldn't be Fotor without these digressions, now would it? Anyway, Vilia Calamandria consolidated all her power within the Grimani sector, and in 1066 BBY, she issued the first Charge Metrica. This called for her seven children to compete with one another to see who could grow their territory the largest, and whoever won would become Vilia's heir. As you can probably guess, this went sideways real fast. Instead of projecting their force outward, the siblings all warred against one another until in 1042, her son Chagras was the last child left alive and the winner by default. Officially, the state apparatus, meaning the Calamandria family of the Grimani sector, became known as the Chagras hegemony. The massacre of Aquilaris by 1042, the Chagras hegemony had grown in power to the point that it began to dream of challenging the Republic directly. In that same year, one of Vilia's grandchildren, Odeon, committed the massacre at Aquilarius, which will have enormous consequences for the rest of the Night Errant series. Unbeknownst to all, Odeon was searching for an ancient Sith relic known as the Helm of Ialdus, a helmet that could cause madness to others. To keep his motive secret, Odeon lied to Valia, saying that the invasion of Aquilarius was an expedition to capture Jedi Knight Venar Treese. The Jedi had long been a thorn in the Chagras Hegemony's side, and so the invasion was approved. On Aquilarius, technically named Aquilarius Minor, the Chagras Hegemony slaughtered civilians in their thousands, while Odeon secretly sought the helm of Aldus, a group of 
research scientists were on Aquilarius to assist the Jedi Republic in retrieving the helmet, but they were captured by Odeon. Venaratris led the defense of Aquilarius, but he and the Republic soldiers were overwhelmed instantly. Trees attempted to flee back to some residential buildings to protect the citizens, but they were leveled by an orbital bombardment before he arrived. In the chaos, a scared eight-year-old girl approached the smoldering buildings where she and her family had once lived. At first, the girl attempted to attack Trees, believing him to be a Sith, but stopped when she learned he was a Jedi. The girl had lived in the residential complex with her parents, but was now homeless and an orphan. Venaratrice, sensing that the Force was very strong with this girl, asked if she wanted to join him and become a Jedi. Seeing her old life in ruins and ashes all around, the young girl introduced herself as Kara Holt and agreed to join the Jedi Order. The duo escaped in Treese's hidden starship, leaving the Grimani sector behind. The remaining population of Aquilaris was enslaved. Character Profile Kara Holt Born in 1050 BBY on Aqualaris, Kara Holt was the Force-sensitive human daughter of Aaron and Mercia Holt, both of whom were research scientists at a local university. By all accounts, Kara's childhood was happy until the invasion and massacre of Aqualaris. In 1042, Mercia was pregnant with their second child. When the invasion began, Kara's parents instructed her to flee to find the transport off-world. However, in the confusion and horror, no transports could be found, and little Kara arrived back at home just in time to see it leveled by an orbital bombardment. In an instant, Kara's home was demolished and her parents killed right before her eyes. She was consoled by a middle-aged Jedi Knight named Vanner Treese, who is renowned in Aqualaris for his, def- for his deeds defending against the Chagras hegemony. Trees informed Kara that she was strong in the Force and she agreed to flee her homeworld and join the Jedi. Despite watching her family and friends die in such horrific fashion, Kara Holt thrived within the Jedi. She trained under Trees on Coruscant and became a leader of other Padawans. At the time, older Padawans helped police Coruscant with all military and experienced Jedi needed for wars or protection elsewhere. In this role, Holt was assigned to stop some local spy smugglers on Coruscant, which gave her a very condescending view of drug drug users she would have to break later in life. Finally, after a decade in the Order, Kara Holt was promoted to the rank of Jedi Knight in 1032 BBY at the age of just 18. In that time, Vanertrees had become like a father to young Kara, and she wished to follow in her master's footsteps. So she agreed to join him for a mission known as Operation Influx. When we meet her in 1032, Kara is tall with jet black hair, an olive complexion, and wields a green lightsaber. She's everything you want in a good Jedi. Smart as hell, infinitely compassionate to others, and brave to the point of foolishness. But she's also got a lot to learn, just like any other headstrong 18-year-old with superpowers and a laser sword. The Second Charge Matrica While Kara was training as a Jedi, things were changing in the Grumani sector. It's clear that the lack of holonet communications with local sectors lost contact with the wire galaxy and began to lose knowledge of their past. Likewise, Sith ambition was drastically reduced. Instead of looking to rule a galactic empire, they were happy to rule sectors and pass that rule by inheritance. In 1040 BBY, Vilia... Calamondria's heir, Chagris, was murdered using a nerve toxin. 
With the death of her seventh and final child, Vilia was left without an heir and a host of grandchildren. Now, the sensible thing to do would be to figure out which grandchild would make the best ruler and then bestow power upon them. But the Sith are not sensible. The first charge metrica lasted for 26 years and resulted in the deaths of all seven of her children. But Vilia did not intervene. Pitting her children against one another in a contest meant that Vilia never had to pick a side between them, even when they ignored her orders and fought against each other. Vilia isn't looking out for the best interest of the people of the Grumani sector, or even the well-being of her descendants. She's clinging to power by any means. Instead of intervening, Vilia played her children off one another and encouraged their infighting because it allowed her to hold power for a little while longer. What's more... This kind of thing wasn't entirely uncommon for the Sith during the Republic Dark Age. The planet Verdant, just one sector over from Grumani, was ruled by 17 rival Sith Lords at the same time. Knowing this, Belia chose to make all those same mistakes again and issued the Second Charge Madrica in 1040. This led to Valia's numerous grandchildren and other assorted relations starting a civil war for full control over the Chakras Hegemony. By... 1032, the Chagras hegemony had splintered with each contestant for Vilia's inheritance, ruling their own little fiefdom within the Grumani sector. These fiefdoms each reported to Vilia as their nominal leader, but they were ruled by the various factions vying for her inheritance. There are dozens of competitors in the Second Charge Metrica, but we will only list the important ones since they are just too many names to repeat them all and expect you to remember. The Daemonate. Based on the planet Darknell and ruled by one of Vilia's grandsons, Daemon. The Daemonate is the largest fiefdom in the Grumani sector when Night Errant begins. The people of the Daemonate lived under their leader's despotic rule as Daemon as Damon was mentally ill and believed himself to be the literal creator of the universe. Most of the people under his rule were enslaved and taught that they were mere extensions of Damon's will. The Odeonate. Based on the planet Jubilee and ruled by one of Vilia's grandsons and Damon's older brother, Odeon. The Odeonate was centrally located in the Grimani sector with an impressive military. All of the Odeonate's citizens were enslaved and children were imprisoned as Odeon felt they burned too brightly with the force. Much like his younger brother, Odeon was mentally ill and held deeply nihilistic views that meant he destroy he that meant he sought to destroy all life to create peace. The Bactrinate. Based on Jutran and ruled by the Quormian Sith Lord Ianos Bactra, an old family friend of Vilia's. However, in early 1032, Bactra will outlive his usefulness, and Vilia will order Damon and Odeon to invade the Bactrinate. The Bactrinate is home to a series of front corporations which Bactra used to give the appearance of fair dealings. The Bactrinate will be divided up between Daemon and Odeon. Arcadianate. Based on the icy world Sned and ruled by one of Vilia's granddaughters, Arcadia, Arcadia had long suspected that Vilia assassinated her father, Chagras, and largely withdrew to her holdings in the southern Grumani sector. Arcadia ruled as something of an enlightened despot in that she attempted to better her subjects through culture and technology while also ruling them with an iron fist. Though her subjects weren't slaves, they were still serfs, and that's not much of an upgrade when you really think about it. 
Arcadia exists to play the good cop to her cousins Diamond and Odeon as the bad cops and to show us that even enlightened despotism is bad. The diarchy, based on the player Bulura and ruled by a Kravaki Sithlord, Shah's Kalisian, who served as regent for the adolescent twins Dromica and Kilian, the younger siblings of Arcadia. The twins used a form of forced persuasion projected planet-wide to brainwash and enslave the population of Villura. Very soon after the events of Night Errant begin, the diarchy will collapse and be absorbed by the Arcadianate. Menagerie. Our final major player was at one time based on Scarpos and ruled by Lord Malachite, who had married into the Kalamandra family. However, Malachite hated technology, so his people fought with melee weapons and rode beasts into battle. Sometime before 1032, Malachite and his followers were ejected from Scarpos when it was absorbed into the Odeon by conquest. Though they held no physical territory at this time, they will play a key role in the events of the Knight Errant series. Operation Influx. We're just going to cover all the Nine Errant series in a running narrative instead of breaking it up by each new story. In early 1032, Vanner received intel from a local resistance leader that Damon had discovered a massive deposit of beradium on the planet Chiloa in the Grimani sector. Beradium was used in weapons manufacturing, especially thermal detonators, and the motherload appeared to make Damon the clear frontrunner to win the second charge Matrica. However, Treese was friends with the Supreme Chancellor and got a special mission known as Operation Influx approved. A task force of Jedi would infiltrate a transport hub and then raid Chiloa to stop mining operations. At the time, using Jedi in this manner was highly unorthodox since they were spread so thin, but they couldn't allow the Chagras hegemony to control that much beradium. So Vanertrees and 11 other Jedi, including Kara Holt, set out on the mission. Initially, it proved a success as they infiltrated the transport hub and made it to Chaloa undetected, but then everything went to shit. The Jedi never expected Odeonate forces to invade Chiloa at the same time and begin using a piece of mining equipment that doubled as a superweapon known as a Kinetic Corruptor. Kinetic Corruptors were massive devices, larger than battleships, that hammered the ground in order to extract Baradium deposits. In doing so, they caused some of the Baradium to explode at the top of the planet's crust, which unleashed volcanic and tectonic activity. Using this machine enough times would break up would break a planet's core. The kinetic corruptor, the kinetic corruptors on Chiloa is our thirtieth superweapon of the series. When Odian unleashed his kinetic corruptor, the Jedi sprang into action to stop the device, but they were no match for the invading Sith forces. Vanertrice sent Kara away to rescue some enslaved miners before dueling Odian himself. After rescuing the group. Kara returned in time to see Odian and Trees duel atop the repulsor lifts carrying the kinetic corruptor. When the machine hammered Chiloa's surface, thousands of locals, Sith fighters, and the other Jedi were killed by the immediate explosion. While Vanner Trees looked on in shock, Odian stabbed him through the chest. Kara, Kara Holt felt her master's death through the Force, her, and her last orders were... okay. Kara Holt felt her master's death through the Force, 
and his last er orders were for her to save as many civilians as possible. In the aftermath, Chiloa's crust began to break apart and magma flowed to the surface. Holt was saved by Gorlan Paladin, Treese's contact with the Chiloan resistance, who also happened to be an ex-Jedi. In the aftermath, Paladin and Holt tried to aid the survivors from a local settlement, but were interrupted by Lord Diamond. The Sith Lord believed Paladin was a traitor who sold secrets to Odeon and force-choked him for info before doing the same to Kara. However, believing both to be mere slave workers, Daiman moved on to counter his brother Odeon's actions. It was then that Paladin and Holt split up as Gorlan remained behind to tend to the 60,000 surviving slaves, including his family. Kara was consumed by rage against the Sith for killing her master, by mass civilian casualties, and the cruelty with which they treated the locals. Gorland's group was left to use filtered industrial runoff as their water, both for cleaning and consumption. Seeing how her people had been brutally subjugated since the massacre of Aquilaris, Kara Holt swore revenge and went to assassinate Daimon. Kara tracked Daimon to a mountaintop fortress that was safe from the flowing magma. There, she was able to get the drop on Daimon as he was torturing another slave for information. Kara nearly killed Daimon, but he revealed that Odeon was planning another invasion from his mobile weapons manufacturing space station, the Spike. Realizing that Odeon intended to destroy Chiloa to stop Daimon, killing the thousands of slaves on the planet, Kara relented from revenge and stole a starship flying to the Spike. On the Spike... Kara learned that it was devoted entirely to building enough kinetic corruptors to extract some huge baradium supplies while destroying Chaloa. While eavesdropping, Holt was discovered by Odeon and his minions who chased her across the catwalks and ladders in the spike. Then Holt ordered a reprogrammed droid to open all the doors, depressurizing most of the spike. In the ensuing chaos, Holt escaped to the ship only to be met by a broadcast on local comms from Lord Daimon, who had taken Gorlan Paladin captive for supposedly giving intel to Odeon. In order to stop Odeon's attack on Chaloa, Kara told him of Daimon's mobile munitions factories, which were making weapons from Baradium. Kara Holt returned to the surface of Chaloa, rescued several prisoners, and freed Gorlan from Daimon's dungeons. Odeon had tapped the secret frequency he and Vanner Trace used to communicate, which is how they, which is how he knew. Okay, Odin had trapped the secret frequency that Gorlin and Vanner Treese used to communicate, which is how he knew when to time his invasion of Chaloa. Gorlin also revealed that Odin and Damon were about were about to venture into all-out war that would consume Chaloa. At the moment, Kara Holt knew that her mission was not revenge, but not revenge for her master's death, but saving the more than 65,000 enslaved miners on the planet. Before they escaped, Holt decided to leave Damon a message by beheading dozens of statues of Damon that the vainglorious feudal lord had erected in a local village. The next day, the remaining slaves on Chiloa gathered to find a way off the planet. It was then discovered that the mobile munitions platforms weren't actually weapons factories, but disguised kinetic corruptors. Damon had faked the weapons manufacturing ruse, complete with empty worker transports, and planned to lure both Odeon and Kara into a trap. 
Once both were in the world, Damon and his forces would escape with the Kinetic, while the Kinetic Corruptors destroyed Chiloa. Meanwhile, Odian had changed his plan of attack. He was no longer going to destroy Chiloa. He was going to invade and use the mobile munitions platforms as an industrial base, not knowing that they were fakes. Holt and Paladin loaded the remaining 65,000 slaves into the empty worker transports and went to the nearest spaceport where Damon's escape fleet was waiting. For the first time in decades, Gorlin Paladin ignited his old lightsaber, helping Kara defeat the spaceport guards. Meanwhile, Odian and his elite lightning guard invaded and overwhelmed the meager Damonate soldiers. The victory was short-lived, however, as the Lightning Guard discovered that the munitions platforms were disguised kinetic corruptors. Across the planet, kinetic corruptors activated and pounded the surface, killing thousands of soldiers around the machines and flooding Chilua's surface with more magma. Both Damon and Odin arrived at the spaceport just as Kara and Gorlin finished loading the last of the slaves and took off in the newly christened Freedom Fleet. Those left on the ground at the spaceport made for abandoned ships and fled the world as best they could. The surface of Chiloa was consumed in magma and the world burned. Diamond and most of his forces survived, but only a small number of Odeon soldiers were able to escape. High above Chiloa, Odeon used a jetpack to catch one of the ships and began dueling Kara Holt on top of a transport ship. Lightsabers clashed as the ships continued to gain altitude, throwing the combatants back and forth. Finally, Gorlan Paladin emerged from the ship attached to a tow cable and engaged Odeon in a lightsaber duel, intent on taking revenge against the Sith for all he had done. The two men fought on the back of the ship and each was badly burned when they got too close to the ship's thrusters. Odeon was able to escape with his jetpack, but Gorlon was fatally wounded, his body covered in first-degree burns. With his last bit of strength, Gorlon crawled back into the ship and told Kara that she had to abandon her foolish quest for revenge or she would die like him. Instead, Gorlon encouraged Kara to uphold her fallen master's legacy and his final orders to protect the civilians. For years, Trees had been allowed to travel to outlying Sith-controlled sectors and work to undermine the Sith and protect civilians, but he was dead now. If anyone was going to help the Grumani sector, it would have to be Kara Holt. In medieval times, a knight errant was a knight who went looking for adventure and chivalrous deeds to perform. During the Republic Dark Age, many Jedi began doing this work to help those abandoned by the Republic's withdrawal. So it was that Karaholt agreed to honor Gorlan Paladin's dying wish. She would take up her master's old cause by protecting the people of the Grumani sector from the Sith as their knight-errant. She agreed to stay and save as many people as she could, starting with the Chiloan refugees. The Battle of Ghazari After the destruction of Chiloa, Karaholt did the Jedi vigilante thing, by liberating slaves on Nylash Three and cutting the heads off of more of Damon's statues, something of a calling card she had developed. The Freedom Fleet took the liberated slaves into Sith space into Republic space, where they joined the Chiloan refugees. On Darknell, the capital of the Damonate, Kara went undercover as a tutor and blew up a prototype ship at one of Damon's factories. She stole a prototype suit of stealth armor from a Bothan double agent named Nars Kahan, 
who was working for Damon, but actually working for Odeon, but then also secretly working for Billy Calamandra. Bothans do love to do spy shit, apparently. Knowing Narsk would report to Odeon, Damon leaked his plan to meet the Sith Lord Ionos Bactra on Gazari in Diamondate Space for a deal. In exchange for some research students from Diamondate Worlds, Bactra would hand over an Arxium, a mobile university that focused on military innovation and tactics. Narsk was then allowed to escape and duly reported to Odeon, though Damon was unaware that the Bothan also reported to Vilia. A few days later, the factions all converged on the lip of a crater on Gazari. Odeon brought his forces in secret, while Batra arrived with the Arxium and his own soldiers. Kara Holt stole away on Damon's ship, which led a mercenary fleet and had the research students to hand over to Batra. Seeing that the students were going to be used as bait, Kara put off her mission of assassinating Damon to rescue the kids, one of whom was the young Celestine girl Holt had been tutoring. Kara would get help from a friendly merc named Jaro Rusher who was working for Damon, a reluctant good guy. Above the lip of the crater on Kazari, Bactra produced the Arxium and Damon freed hundreds of students, but Odeon arrived with his fleet. However, Odeon... But Odeon arrived with his fleet. Odeon arrived, blockaded the world, and then dropped a mobile siege tower known as the Death Spiral into the crater. Briefly, Bactronate and Daemonate forces teamed up to try and stop the massive siege tower, which was impervious to fire. Kara moved to protect the students, finding shelter for them within the Arxium while the battle raged outside. Kara Holt needed to find a means of escape. In the chaos, she found a stray speeder with one of Odeon's minions unconscious in the seat. Seeing an opportunity, Kara strapped a bandolier full of thermal detonators to the unconscious minion and jammed the accelerator on the speeder bike. When the speeder crashed into the Death Spiral's speeder garage, Kara detonated the bandolier, blowing up the Death Spiral from the inside. This threw the battle into pandemonium as Kara prevailed upon Jaro Rusher to abandon the hopeless battle and pilot the students to safety. After a lengthy disagreement, Rusher agreed and called on all his mercs to retreat. When the death spiral was blown sky high, Narsk Kahain got a message from Vilia informing her grandsons to turn on Bactra and wipe him out. The Kalamondra matriarch had no use for an outsider non-human Sith Lord, especially since his value was tied up in those front corporations used by the Bactrinate. Since Daimon and Odeon each feared Vilia more than they hated one another, they joined forces and turned on Ayana's Bactra. Most of Bactra's forces were killed in the massacre that followed, while some escaped the world. Bactra himself barely survived and retired to a Quirmian retirement colony following the battle. Quirmian are the same species as Jedi Master Yariel Poof, the long-necked member of the Jedi Council in the prequels. In the aftermath of the Battle of Gaziri, Rusher and Holt were able to limp to Malira with the refugees and the 500-plus remaining members of Russia's original mercenary force, which originally numbered 3,000. The trip was contentious as the students fought amongst one another and with the mercs, while Rusher 
briefly toyed with the idea of throwing students out the airlock before softening his stance. Instead, the group traveled to Bailara, a world shrouded in mystery due to the lack of sector-wide communications and supposedly ruled by children through a regent. On Bailara, Kira found the situation in the hierarchy to be far worse than she could have imagined. The world was indeed held by twin child Sith Lords who nominally ruled through a regent Sith Lord, but the twins actually used an intense form of force hypnosis to control people as automaton slaves. Holt performed recon on the capital city while Rusher waited with the refugees on the ship, but their presence was soon detected and the population moved as a zombie-like hive mind toward the spaceport. Rusher, his mercs, and the refugee and the refugees fought off the citizens and the Dyarchy's police force escaping out to sea in their ship. Meanwhile, Carol infiltrated the twins' palace atop a mesa and interrupted the network of Solygians who transmitted the twins' orders across the planet using their species' natural telepathy. Further in the palace complex, Kara confronted the regent, a Kravaki Sith Lord named Saj Khaleesian. You may remember that our old friend Jedi Master Voto Siask Boss from Tales of the Jedi was also a Kravaki, a species with a chitinous exoskeleton and numerous tentacles used as arms and legs. Khaleesian wished to duel Holt on his own, but the twins overwhelmed his mind through the force to control his movements. During the duel, the Kravaki wielded six lightsabers at once using his using his tentacles, but his skills were also dulled by the mental manipulation. Kira used this to her advantage and severed all six of Khaleesian's tentacles holding lightsabers, disarming her foe. Realizing he was helpless with the twins interfering, he submitted and took Kira to their throne room. There, Kira fought the nanny droids and realized that Quillian, that Quillen, was using his twin sister, Dromika, to carry out his bidding, using her ability with Force Hypnosis and the Solygian Network to rule the planet. During the fighting, Khaleesian was freed from the mental control and started to duel Kara again, but this was interrupted when Rusher piloted his ship to the top of the mesa and blasted out the windows with laser blasts. Seeing an opportunity, Kira Hulk grabbed Quillen and fled to Rusher's ship, which headed for space. Jermika immediately fell into a coma without her brother, and the people of Ballora were free of mental control. A Potemkin fiefdom. The entire planet of Belura immediately descended into anarchy as the formerly enslaved Belurian rebels, Belurians, rebelled against the apparatus that had enslaved them. Unfortunately, their liberation was fleeting. Before Holt, Rusher, and the refugee students could break the gravity well, the Arcadianate fleet descended in droves. Rusher's ship was caught in a tractor beam, while the Dyerke fleet was crushed. Within moments, all Dyerke territory had been subsumed into the Arcadianate, run by Quillen and Dromica's big sister, Arcadia Calamondra. Unknown to Kara, the prototype stealth suit she had stolen from Narsk Kahane on Darknell had a tracker aboard. 
When Valia determined the refugee ship was headed to Belura, she alerted her granddaughter Arcadia to ready a fleet to invade the diarchy. Kara Holt was taken to meet with Arcadia aboard her flagship, where she was told that the invasion was solely to remove Kalishian, who had orchestrated the whole thing, and the regent was executed. Kara, Rusher, and the rest accompanied Arcadia to Sinad, the icy throne world of her fiefdom. Unlike the rest of her siblings, cousins, and other various lords under the Chagras hegemony, Arcadia knows how to play politics. She puts up a good front and seems to want to build a utopia, but it's all a facade for her to rule over serfs and plot to rule the Grumani sector. Arcadia is essentially an enlightened despot in the mold of many world leaders toward the end of the late Middle Ages and early modern period in real life. Kara quickly saw through Arcadia's charade as she noticed a chemical weapons factory making nerve toxin, but many of the student refugees and mercs were taken in. Eventually, Arcadia revealed her true plan to assassinate Valia for the possible murder of Chakras, and because the Charge Matrica events were such utter folly. Arcadia then let Kara watch in secrecy as Valia Calamondra spoke with the leaders of the Chagras hegemony and divided the former Bactrinate territory amongst them. Odeon was given the former capital world around Jutrand, while Daemon was awarded the fiefdom's largest rent corporation. Vilia then awarded all Diarchy territory to Arcadia for her quick thinking and stopping the uprising on Belura. For the first time, the inner workings of the Chagras hegemony were revealed to a non-Sith. While we as omniscient narrators understand that these are feudal squabbles between relatives, most of the people in the sector had no clue about any of this. To them, it was just fighting between powerful Sith Lords, not the second installment of a weird family dynastic competition. Following the meeting, Arcadia revealed her true intention to Kara Holt. She wanted the Jedi Knight to assassinate Vilia Calamandra. However, Kara refused, stating that she wouldn't ally with the Sith and she wouldn't be a party to Arcadia's power play. At that, Arcadia finally gave up pretenses and had Kara imprisoned where she was slated to be executed. After Rusher began to suspect something when Kara couldn't be found and Arcadia demanded the mercs leave the student refugees and depart, Synod. In the prisons below, Kara was tortured and found out that the Chagras hegemony had very little info on how the Republican Jedi operated. Meanwhile, Narsk Kahan, who had fled with refugees after Ghazari, received orders from Vilia to beware of Arcadia and immediately aligned with Rusher. Through her network of spies and informants, Vilia had learned of Arcadia's intentions and planned to move against her granddaughter. Arcadia, for her part, seemed to be prepared to step into the power vacuum that would be created by Vilia's death and had several high-ranking officers and bureaucrats ready to install. Her military and fleets were prepared and ready to begin invading and annexing the minute Vilia dropped dead. They were prepared to drop nerve gas on any restive population that didn't immediately submit. The last piece of the puzzle was killing Vilia, and since Kara Holt refused, the job fell to everyone's favorite Bothan, Narsk Kahan. Narsk was given the prototype cell suit and several bombs filled with nerve toxins. Of course, Arcadia didn't know that Narsk was working for her grandmother and managed to have Kara's lightsaber smuggled in with the suit. Before departing Saned, 
Norsk freed Kara and returned her lightsaber. In exchange, Holt agreed to create a diversion that would allow Norsk and Russia's ship of refugees to flee the planet. On Sened's icy surface, Narsk used the stealth suit to steal Arcadia's personal starship, where she had placed her still comatose younger brother, Quillan. Narsk successfully escaped with Quillan, but sustained injuries, and the stealth suit was damaged in an explosion. Meanwhile, Kara went to have her final showdown with Arcadia. She ascended the capital streets, dodging ordnance fire from Arcadia, which killed hundreds of civilians. Finally, the two met to duel in Arcadia's beloved museum. Arcadia used a red double-bladed lightsaber, while Kara had her familiar green blade, and the duel commenced, as Jedi and Sith are wont to do. They couldn't help but verbally spar with one another. Arcadia called Kara an up-jumped Padawan, supporting an exploitative pseudo-republic, and she's right. Arcadia, or sorry, Kara called Arcadia a petty backwater excuse for a Sith Lord who was little more than a girl boss tyrant with delusions of grandeur, and she's right too. The two fought, but Arcadia's skills were formidable and she gained the advantage, but events were about to overtake them. Outside, Rusher and his mercs took Sened's planetary tractor beam down, and the initial explosion caused others to cascade across the city, blowing a hole in the side of the mountain. Setting off a series of explosions on a snowy mountainside city immediately unleashed a massive avalanche that collapsed part of the museum where Kara and Arcadia were fighting. All of the commotion distracted Arcadia, and Kara fled toward an opening in the roof where Rusher's ship waited. Rusher's mercs fired on the museum, stopping Arcadia from any pursuit, and then fled the planet with Kara in tow. During their escape, Rusher's ship had gained more than 100 new refugees who defected from Arcadianate in the, the confusion. Due to the efforts of Narsk, Rusher, and Kara, Arcadia's attempted expansion was derailed as many of her fighters and ships were destroyed during the avalanche. Using coordinates provided by Narsk, Rusher jumped his ship to neutral space, and then the Republic, where the refugees were relocated and given shelter and food. Rusher was given a substantial reward, which he used to fix up his ship and hire more mercs. Kara returned to her mission in the Grumani sector, but she and Rusher parted ways as friends where they would have once been enemies. Operation Deluge just for reference, in case you're keeping score at home, we just finished the Knight Errant novel, meaning we only have the final two comic arcs, Deluge and Escape, left. Following the events of Sened, Kira Holt returned to her homeworld of Aquilaris for the first times for the first time since she fled with Vanner Treese ten years earlier. In that decade, things on Aquilaris had not improved. After the invasion and forcible annexation of Aquilaris into the Daemonate in 1042, the population was enslaved and many had become addicted to a form of spice known as deluge as a substitute for food. Deluge worked by dulling the brain to hunger pain to the hunger pangs experienced by slaves due to their meager rations, but also caused users to fall into ap apathetic lethargy, unresponsive to most stimuli. Since early 1032, Delu's addiction spread to worlds through, throughout the Grimani sector, which had the effect of undermining Sith efforts to exploit their labor to fuel expansion. 
Unbeknownst to all, Deluge was being purposely spread by agents of the Galactic Republic who hoped to undermine the Chagras hegemony without diverting resources. The program, known as Operation Deluge, was spearheaded by Baron Lemain, a wealthy Alderanian noble and business magnate. Lemain rightly believed that this would undermine Sith operations in the, in the Grimani sector, but he was ambivalent to the effect that addiction had on the serfs and slave workers. Deluge was distributed via a Republic initiative known as Grace Command, which was created and funded by Lemain as a mercy organization. Devil Squadron is the flight team that makes these humanitarian aid runs and is led by Captain Jen DeVard. When Kara initially comes into contact with people addicted to Deluge, she will be put off by them after her time catching drug runners on Coruscant as a Padawan. She will have to overcome her preconceived notions about drug users, however. At the same time, a hut crime lord named Zodo wished to expand his slave trading and weapons manufacturing business to the Grimani sector. To accomplish this goal, Zodo built a fleet of ships known as Storm Drivers, which held weaponized water vaporators that sucked the moisture from the atmosphere and unleashed it as torrential downpours and flooding. The Storm Drivers are our 31st superweapons of the show. Homecoming. After picking up a distress signal, Kara arrived on Aquilaris, excited to help her people with a transport ship capable of evacuating most of the enslaved populace. At a spaceport, Kara met an old friend named Jode Creel and was excited to enlist his help in liberating the planet. However, her initial excitement was short-lived as Creel explained that the populace was addicted to deluge and didn't care about escaping because of the drug side effects. In fact, the distress signal was just deployed to hopefully get more deluge delivered for another fix. This enraged Carolholt, as she couldn't believe people would prize drugs over their own freedom and well-being, but she didn't understand the scope of the situation yet. To Kara, the people of Aquilaris were just like drug runners on Coruscant, little more than petty criminals looking for their next fix. But that's all wrong. The people of Aquilaris had been enslaved for a decade, doing manual labor for most of the day on meager, insufficient rations. Using Deleuze didn't make them bad people. It was a means to escape the pain and misery of their everyday lives. Kara didn't have long to be angry, because Zodo invaded with his storm drivers moments later. Aquilaris's large oceans arose quickly, drowning many of Diamond's troops and slaves. Luckily, Kara and others near the spaceport were saved when Devil Squadron flew to the rescue, driving off Zodo's forces for the time being. When Zodo's ships fled, Devil Squadron mopped up the rest of Diamond's soldiers and liberated the people of Aquilaras. Deluge addicts and others who wanted were placed on a transport ship bound for Republic space, where they would be relocated. Kara immediately came to, like, Devil Squadron's captain, Jen Devad, who offered Holt a spot on the squad with one of their six pilots leaving on another mission. Jode Krill tried to warn Kara of Devil Squadron's trafficking of dailies, but his advice was dismissed. Instead, Kara joined Devil Squadron as the group went on the attack and chased some of Zodo's starfighters into space. 
The pilots of Devil Squadron had all been enslaved by Zardo for more than five years before escaping, and it was payback time. Or so they thought. Sensing a trap, Holt tried to stop the pursuit, but it was too late, and Devil Squadron found Zardo's entire fleet, which had been hiding on the edges of the Aquilaris system. Kara was able to change course in time and return to Aquilaris, but the rest of Devil Squadron wasn't so lucky. Four of them, including Captain DeVard, were captured while one was killed in the dogfighting. To spare the lives of her remaining squadmates, Jen DeVard agreed to return to Aquilaris and get some samples of Deluge so Zoto could synthesize it. Zoto intended to mix synthetic Deluge into the Gramani sector's food supplies, thus weakening the entire region for his takeover. Devad was given transport to the planet's surface while Zoto's storm drivers, storm drivers blockaded the world in space. On Aquilaris, Kara began the slow evacuation process as the storm drivers descended and began to flood the planet. Kara found Jen Devad retrieving the deluge and begged for assistance but was rebuffed. Jim was in it to save her squadmates, who Zoto held captive, and believed the people of Aquilaris to be unworthy addicts. When Kara subsequently discovered that Devil Squadron and Grace Command were just a cover to get civilians addicted to Deluge and destabilize the Sith, she flew into a rage. Even worse than that, they supposedly liberated worlds, got these people addicted to Spice, then retreated to let the Sith re-enslave the planet, destabilizing the sector even further. Pinning Devad to the wall with the Force, Kara berated the pilot for her callousness to the people of the Grimani Sector, her people. Devad and her devil squadron comrades were indifferent to the suffering because they blamed the civilians for their capture and enslavement by Zoto in the first place after some civilians refused to hide them during a battle. Kara eventually let Devad go, but warned her not to trust Zoto as the captain departed for space. When the storm drivers unleashed their gales, the surviving people made it to the highest point on the planet as the waters rose. At the last moment, Kara's childhood friend, Jode Creel, emerged with a submarine that had been used to travel between the surface and underwater algae harvesting stations. Jode was ready to overcome his addiction and help save his people and all the refugees loaded into Jode's submarine. Then, as if by some miracle, the storm drivers deactivated. This was due to Jen Devad, who had taken Kara's words to heart and didn't trust Zodo. When it came time to exchange the deluge for her comrades, Zodo revealed that he had freed them by releasing them from the airlock, but Devad had rigged the cases of deluge with trigger explosives. When the case was opened, it blew a hole in the bridge of Zodo's ship and stopped transmitting to the storm drivers, which shut down. Devad used the commotion to escape in a small starfighter and found Kara's sub on Aquilaris, where Devad apologized and Holt agreed to help defeat Zodo. Together, Kara Holt and Jen Devad flew to Darknell, the heavily populated capital of the Diamondate, where Zodo attacked next. Unleashing his storm drivers again, Zodo planned to drown all the worlds of the Grumani sector until he alone stood as its ruler. Zodo's fleet caught Diamond off guard, and a massive space battle ensued as the planet began to flood. The situation looked to be lost for Diamond, but the arrival of Holt and Devad changed all that. High above, they flew into Zodo's flagship, where Holt fought her way to the bridge and dueled Zodo, 
who was able to move about and even fight unlike many of his species. Zeno initially took the advantage, choking Kara with his tail, but Jen Devad finally got the last laugh as she flew the starship around and blasted out the bridge controls. This depressurized the ship and allowed Kara to escape Zeno's grasp, and it simultaneously deactivated all the storm drivers. Divide rescued Holt and they escaped, while Zodo was captured in the vacuum of space and subsequently executed by Daimon. Darknell was wrecked with part of the surface submerged, though the storm stopped before the entire planet was inundated. Later, Divide personally undercut Operation Deluge by flying transport ships into the Grumani sector herself, dumping the Deluge and returning to the Republic with refugees. Grace Command never caught on before it was disbanded. In the aftermath of the Battle of Dark- Darknell, Damon gained a begrudging respect and even admiration for Kara Holt, who had inadvertently saved his ass. It was a shock when Kara contacted Damon, suggesting a brief alliance against their joint a- enemy, Odeon. Damon would facilitate Kira's entry into Odeonate space so that she could join his military and destabilize it from within. This would work out for both this would work out for both of them. Damon would get a weakened Odeon, making him the most powerful player in the second charge Matrico, while Kara would get to avenge the massacre of Aquilaris and find info on her parents and sibling who possibly survived. So in late 1032, Kara Holt took on the pseudonym Mercy and joined Odeon's elite group of Force-sensitive soldiers, the Novitiates, facilitated by Damon's agents. This involved posing as a factory worker, attempting to escape a Damonate world, before being rescued by one of Odeon's agents who rescued individuals defecting from the Damonate. It worked like a charm, and Mercy allowed herself to be recruited to serve Odeon by another novitiate named Wayman. Soon thereafter, Mercy was invading the Menagerie with Odeonate forces and fighting in the First Battle of Scarpos. During the fighting, Mercy clashed with her commanding officer, a Taro male named Bel Dulan, who had become Odeon's top general and embraced his nihilistic worldview. Wayman was able to protect Mercy by pointing out her contributions, but Mercy and Yulan mistrusted one another. After successfully defeating Lord Malachite's soldiers on Scarpos, Bel Yulan and the Novitiates met with Odeon on his new capital of Jubilee. Odeon revealed that he was restarting Project Pandemonium, a decade-old attempt to find the Helm of Eldus. The project originally stalled in 1042 after the trail led to Serasia, which had been in the Bactrinate at the time. With the dissolution of the Bactrinate, Odeon resumed Project Pandemonium and sent his soldiers to Serasia. After the meeting, Mercy was able to discover that her parents had been forcibly recruited into Project Pandemonium as they had performed research on Sith artifacts before. Their last known whereabouts were on Serasia, and Mercy joined Odeon's forces there. On Serasia, Mercy and Beld Yulan once again clashed about tactics. Mercy attempted to show a little mercy while Yulan was so fanatically nihilistic that he fired upon his own troops to defeat the enemy. While the novitiates sought the helm of Yeldus in a temple built into a mountain, Mercy was separated and encountered one of the temple's religious zealot defenders who happened to be an old family friend of the Holtz. 
This woman, lovingly named Aunt Zuju, recognized Mercy as Kara Holt on sight, and the two embraced. Aunt Zuju said that the helm was on Scarpos, where Kara's parents had traveled after leaving Sarasia. Their reunion was cut short when Yulan's forces entered the cavern, at which point Aunt Zuju blew up the temple and herself to stop the Sith from gaining entry. Mercy revealed that the helm was on Scarpos, and Odin's fleet departed, but had to make a stopover to refuel at the moon Vanaheim. There, Mercy discovered a series of cloisters that Odeon created to keep children born in the Odeonate, as he believed children burned too brightly with the light side of the Force. If Kara's then-unborn siblings survived the massacre of Aquilaris in 1042, they were almost certainly in the cloisters. Unfortunately, all identification was stripped from children when they were placed in the cloisters. Beld Yulin informed Mercy that at least a dozen cloisters existed across the Odeonate and revealed that he had only embraced nothingness following the deaths of his own children due to the Kandorian Plague. Despite Yulin's nihilism, even he seemed to be disturbed by Odeon's cloisters and treatment of children. The three armies converged. Then the three armies converged on Scarpos, and the second battle of Scarpos began on the side of a tall mesa. Lord Malachi attempted to retake the planet while Damon and Odeon sought the helm of the eldest. Damon had been alerted by a novitiate who had turned out to be a Damonite agent. During the massive battle, Mercy saved Bel Dulon from a, from a falling bomb, earning his respect in the process. Everyone made a mad dash for the helm, which was in the caverns below the mesa, but Odian got there first, claiming the Sith artifact. The helm of, the helm of Aeldus is now the 32nd superweapon of the show. He also captured Mercy, revealing that he knew her identity and used her to lead him to the helm. While in Odian's custody, it was revealed that Odianate troops had found two human skeletons deep within the mesa caverns, one of which held a necklace that Kara Holt knew to be her mother's. Kara's parents died when they collapsed the cavern to keep the helm's location a secret. Upon learning the truth of her parents' death, grief overtook our young knight errant. Until that moment, Odion didn't know how to activate, let alone use, the helm of Yeldas. But Kara's grief fueled the ancient Sith relic, and Odian saw that the helmet could convert strong emotions like grief, anguish, and fear into dark side energy, which would then be used to drive beings into a homicidal rage. Odian immediately prepared to unleash this power during the Second Battle of Scarpos, where Malachite, Daemon, and Odian's forces fought one another. A few of Odian's best soldiers were evacuated, but the rest were otherwise left to their fates. As Odian projected the helm of Yeldus' power, the three armies began tearing one another apart indiscriminately. Comrades and friends turned on one another, driven into blind rage by the dark side energy. Odion's flagship departed Scarpos with Kara as prisoner, while tens of thousands of soldiers died at the base of a giant mesa. Both Lord Malachite and Damon realized that Odeon possessed the helm and fled the planet, but their militaries were in ruins, as was Odeon's. Believing that the helm of Eldis gave him the power to finally realize his nihilistic ambition to destroy all life in the galaxy, 
Odion traveled to Vanaheim to start his conquest. There, he would fuel the helm of Yeldis with the most terrifying thing in the universe, the imagination of a scared child. For years, the orphan children in his cloisters had been fed, sheltered, and indoctrinated in solitary bubbles, where they would only see a nanny droid. They had never experienced darkness, and Odion was betting that would fuel their terror. While Carol was otherwise detained by Odian, the rest of the Calamandra clan realized that things had gone far enough. Running some petty backwater fiefdom is one thing, but destroying all life in the galaxy is a bit much. As Vilia said in a broadcast to the other leaders of the Fractured Chagras hegemony, no one should want to be king of a graveyard. So it was that Vilia finally intervened in the Chagra Matrica, rallying her remaining grandchildren and retainers against her grandson, Odeon. On Vanaheim, Odeon viewed closed-circuit TVs that would show him the effects the helm was having in real time, while Karaholt was shackled to a frame that forced her to watch the carnage. Everything came to a head in the Battle of Vanaheim. In the cloisters below the moon's surface, Odeon plunged thousands of children into darkness for the first time. When the light shut off, children who had become used to routine were left to fear the worst and had no way to ask for help. Soon the children began to panic and scream and cry, and their misery fueled the helm of Aeldus. All across the Grimani sector, slaves, serfs, and soldiers killed one another without compunction, dying in their millions. Odin only grew more powerful from the ensuing atrocities, and the helm even began affecting the novitiates, who began fighting one another. During the confusion, Kara freed herself and summoned a red lightsaber with the Force. Holt fought women around the room, with the novitiate getting the upper hand and preparing to kill the young Jedi. Meanwhile, Odeon had charged the helm of Aeldus to the point where he could unleash its power upon the entire galaxy. But then, suddenly, the helm's power faded and the violence began to subside. Furiously, Odin looked around only to see that the lights had been turned back on in the cloisters, which stopped his ability to feed on the tormented children. It seemed that Karaholt's words and deeds had a positive effect on Beldulan. Recall that she had saved his life on Scarpos, even though they detested one another and had gone through so much just to aid people she didn't even know. Seeing and hearing those children in agony reminded Beld Yulon of his own children who had been killed, and he realized that life wasn't meaningless just because of his personal loss. It had meaning and material consequence for those around him, specifically those children in the cloisters, and he had the power to make it better, just like Kara. So Beld Yulon snuck away earlier, took his happy ass down to the control room, and turned the lights back on in the cloisters. Old Odeon was betrayed by his closest and most nihilistic general, and with the flip of a light switch, Odeon's bid for galactic power ended. In Odeon's throne room, Kara used the momentary confusion to impale Wayman on a lightsaber. Finally, Odeon noticed that the lights had been turned on in the cloisters and the pods had been opened. The pain and misery turned to joy in seconds as the children celebrated their freedom. A good Jedi. The ensuing rush of joy and excitement as thousands of children were freed overloaded the helm of Eldis and the bright shine that children apparently created through the force overwhelmed Odeon. When the helm overloaded, it created a small firestorm consuming Odeon in flames. In his final moments, 
Odin begged for Terra to take him to be healed on Jubilee, but she refused, citing all the bad stuff he did. So it was that Odin, self-proclaimed destroyer of the universe, died in late 1032 on Vanaheim. Kara was soon joined by Beldulan, who had renounced any affiliation with the Sith and was surrounded by several small children who had taken him on as a father. Holt and Yulon quickly evacuated as many children as they could from the cloisters, but couldn't reach all 12 across the former Odinate before the Calamandra clan divided them up. In the end, the United family played no part in Odin's downfall and immediately fractured upon hearing the news. Vilia went back to her subtle manipulations, and the rest divided up the Odinate and resumed the second charge metrica. However, the Chagras hegemony was fully splintered, and the Sith hold on the Grumani sector had been lessened significantly after Karaholt's personal war against them. Though the various Kalimandra claimants still controlled the sector, their armies and resources were decimated. All of Odin's forces had been destroyed, while Daimon and Malachite lost most of their armies during the bloodbath at the Second Battle of Scarpos. Arcadia had been marginalized following her attempted coup and had yet to regain her power by the Battle of Vanaheim. The Second Charge Matrica continued, but events in the wider galaxy would overtake them before a final victor could be determined. Beld, Yulan, and Karaholt loaded as many refugee children from the cloisters as possible into their transport ship and relocated the children to the Galactic Republic. Yulan stayed there with his new children, but Holt prepared to return to the Grumani sector since its people still needed her help. And with that, the Night Errant stories end in late 1032. When they end, so do our records for the Grimani sector and the main character characters from this series. This series is simply a look at one year in the life of one Jedi trying to make the universe slightly better for everyone while it crumbles. We were never meant to get a complete look at any of their lives, including Kira's. Instead, this, the stories were meant to show us the good that one Jedi can do to protect the galaxy. Kara Holt entered the year 1032 as a newly promoted Jedi Knight who watched her master and ten other Jedi die on her first mission. Yet, just before Vanner Treese died, he ordered Kira, his Jedi apprentice and surrogate daughter, to protect the civilians at all costs. Though it took her a little while to internalize that message, she eventually figured it out. Though she wasn't always a perfect Jedi, as evidenced by her quest for revenge against Odin and Daemon, Kira Holt was determined to uphold the Jedi Code and her master's final wish. Over the year, Kara weakened or destroyed the forces of Odeon, Daemon, Arcadia, the Diarchy, Lord Malachite, and Vilia Calamandra herself. She rescued and or freed no less than 200,000 people in the sector from slavery or serfdom under the Chagras hegemony. She saved billions of lives by preventing the destruction of the Daemonate capital world Darknell. Then she saved the entire galaxy from being plunged into a homicidal anarchy and darkness when she stopped Odeon from using the Helm of the Eldest. She couldn't fix the Republic or even totally defeat the rulers of the Grimani sector, and that frustrated Kara, but she could make the everyday lives of regular people better by using her power in the Force for good. Kara Holt wasn't a perfect Jedi, but then again, none of them ever are. Instead, she was the hero they needed and the one they, des and the one they deserved. She was a knight errant defending the little people when no one else would or could. 
In short, Kara Holt was a good Jedi who helped the most oppressed people in the galaxy, not because she knew them or considered them to be friends, but because it was the right thing to do. And when the galaxy is crumbling all around them, even one good Jedi doing the right thing can make all the difference. And with that, thank you all for listening to this supersized issue of a supersized episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will introduce Darth Bane, we'll discuss the creation of the Rule of Two, and we will bring the Old Republic to the brink of full collapse. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.